imagine that you're 90 years old and you're in good health, excellent health, no health concerns right now, uh, and you are financially taken care of. You've, you've, everything is in good shape. So there's nothing that you have to do. Your time is your own, and you've, your life is behind you, basically, all your career achievements. You've done what you've done. You've been where you've been, and now you're at the age of 90. I don't know how many years you still have ahead of you, but let's say you've got five or 10 or, you know, just a few. I don't know. But you've got, you got a stretch of time in front of you. What do you want to do? What would you do? What do you do? Then the challenge of that is, the first part is, what is it you're doing every day? What does a day look like? What's, what's, the, what's the focal point of your day? What is it you want to do? Uh, you get up, you brush your teeth, you have breakfast, this and that. But aside from all the stuff of living, where do you put your time? that you have free now. And the second part of the challenge is, okay, how can you put that in some form in your life today? Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where today I'm joined by John David Mann, an award-winning author and entrepreneur that has been creating careers and doing the impossible since he was a teenager. After founding his own high school at 17 years, John forged a successful career as a prize-winning composer and cellist before building a multi-million dollar sales organization and writing dozens of highly reviewed books on happiness, success, and creating extraordinary life. So John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to have you. And I have to admit, like, this was the hardest intro I've ever written because there's just so much <laughs> stuff you've done throughout your career. It was so hard to pack in a few sentences. A little and, crazy. Yeah, it, it totally is crazy. And so before we sort of dive into your story and, you know, all the stuff that you're doing now, I first want to take us back to the time you were 13. You went to Greece yeah. and your mom asked you to, to write that first professional piece of music to compose it. Can you share that story and how it's impacted you for the rest of your life? Yeah, sure. Um, so my mother was a, uh, she was a, uh, she loved Greek culture, ancient Greek culture, and she taught Greek mythology in, uh, in grade school. And she also was a playwright herself. So she wrote plays and she, um, she put on a, a wide number of, of theatrical performances. And she decided that she wanted to bring a group of kids from our school in New Jersey, East Coast, US, uh, a bunch of kids to Greece and perform Prometheus Bound, which, um, you know, very, very ancient play. And she arranged somehow to, to, for the kids to perform it in the same theater where it was originally premiered far in the north of Greece. You know, this ancient Greek temple, nothing but ruins now. But I mean, you still, the, the, the semicircular steps and the, you know, the graded, the whole amphitheater is there. And I was one of those fortunate kids that went on this trip. So um, we started rehearsing the play, Prometheus Bound. We were going to do it up there and, and, uh, in Abadaris. And, and, uh, and she said, you know, I want to set some of the choruses to music. So would you, would you please do that? And I was like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. I, I can't. And she said, yeah, sure you can. So I, I was surrounded by music as a kid. My father was a classical musician, a conductor, um, a musicologist. And uh, my brother was a musician, my younger brother, my older brother. I didn't have a younger brother at this point, but yeah, we were all musicians. And I was also, um, at that point, I played the cello. And uh, so it was an unreasonable request, but not unreasonably unreasonable. I, so I, I sat down and over the course of a couple of weeks, I scrolled out some music and it was the first thing I ever composed. And then I went on to, to, to do quite a bit of composing. Wow. Yeah. So was that the thing that also gave you confidence? And, you know, if we fast forward three years to your 16 and you come up with this idea of like, Hey, I want to start my own high school, right? While you're still in high school, like, first of all, yes. how does someone come up with that idea? And then secondly, how do you actually pull it off rather than just yeah. keep it in fairy land? Well, to be fair, the answer to the first question was, I didn't come up with the idea. It was fr friends of mine. Had, uh, I heard uh, a friend of mine said, Hey, you know, this girl and this girl, they're talking about creating their own high school. And I said, well, that, sounds, that sounds really interesting. So we got together and we all, our group grew from four to five to eight to 10. And you know, soon there was maybe two dozen of us sort of working on this project. Um, but your second question was, first was, how do you think of that idea? I didn't. Second question is, how do you do it? I have no idea. <laughs> so, 
Um, although there were maybe 20 of us, I was the one who kind of spearheaded it because I dropped out of school at that point. My parents allowed me to leave school because they believed in what we were doing. And you know, I've already given a hint here. My parents' encouragement was a huge part of it, I think. Yeah. Um, they kind of became the uh, you, know, uh, you know godmother godfather of the project, and um, so I won't go into the details about what we did and how we did it. But we spent that year kind of organizing our thoughts, figuring out what we really wanted to see in an ideal school, and we interviewed director candidates. We hired a director, you know, we had no money, but we hired a director, <laughs> and we we ended up opening the following September. And I went back to that school later and taught there, and it ran for a, a, about a decade. I. I uh, when I moved on to other things, I lost touch with it. But yeah, it was, but you asked, was it the, the music, the thing my mom did with me? I think that was a big part of it. Um, you know, it, it, the idea of kind of leaping into the unknown and creating something that you have some ideas about, but you don't really have any true evidence, any concrete evidence that it's even possible, let alone you can do it. Um, that's a scary thing. I'm, I'm st still doing it today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we're going to dive into it later into how you keep reinventing yourself even to this day. But first, can you show us what are some of those, those skills or those lessons that you wanted to teach people that maybe even you wanted to learn through that high school you created? Um, you know, I think, well, lessons from the high school, um, you know, it's interesting. I think I learned from creating the high school something about the relationship of structure and um, improvisation, mm -hmm. <laughs> spontaneity. Um, I know as, as a writer, I'm constantly battling, uh, and battling may be too harsh a word, but it is sometimes a, a battle. I'm constantly juggling, balancing, sometimes battling between uh, trying to come up with a creative idea, come up with something that doesn't exist. You know, kind of let ideas bubble and percolate and just, just come out versus structuring it. And, um, you know, this was really true at the school. We structured it. We wanted it to have a tremendous amount of freedom, but we also wanted to give it a structure. And the question was how to create a structure that doesn't choke the freedom, how to create a structure that serves the freedom, that serves the growth, the creativity, the inspiration, the, the, openness to new ideas and to you know to malleability and growth it's really about yeah, how do you you can start something but then how do you continue growing you know so many entrepreneurial businesses every business started out as an entrepreneurial business mm -hmm. so many entrepreneurial endeavors uh, uh grow to a certain point have early success or early excitement but maybe the biggest challenge in an entrepreneurial business is how to take it from that startup phase to continuity, to longer life, you know, to succession with other people coming in and so forth. The succession is so, so difficult. I take a left turn for a second to writing and just say, I think that the, the number one reason people don't write, you know, because everybody has stories, everybody has ideas, everybody can read, everybody has words, everybody can talk. Uh, and everybody is kind of, most people, are kind of intrigued with the whole writing thing. I've had so many people say, oh, I'd love to do what you do, but I have no idea how to do it. I think the number one thing that stops people from becoming accomplished writers is they, they start to write something and then start to squash it immediately, start to edit it. Like you write a sentence and go, that's terrible. You write a paragraph and say, that's dumb. You write a few words and say, wait, I don't know, where, scratch it out. I don't know what I'm, where I'm going with this. It's, and that right there, is the challenge of balancing spontaneity with structure. You know, you just start to get an idea out and then you superimpose your structure on it. And you say, ah, that's dumb. <laughs> nobody, nobody will believe that, or that you know, sounds awkward, or that just sounds lame, or that sounds stiff or whatever. You cross it out, then it's impossible to become a writer. It's impossible to write anything that's, that's gonna move anybody, you know, even a blog post or, a, or an email. Uh, you have to be able to as a writer now, you have to be able to create a space where you can just genuinely be free to put stuff down on the page that will probably be awful, you know, that may be terrible, and, and not judge it, 
not even look at it if, it's, if that's what it takes. Um, just kind of let it go, let it be, get it out, get it out, get it out, get it out, get it out. Then there comes the other point of the process where you go back and start to look at what you've got. And most people are way too hard on themselves in the creative phase, way too easy on themselves in the editing phase. So that's, you know, to me, 90% maybe of, 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 the, of the trick uh, uh, or secret to developing as a writer is to be easier, easier on yourself in the creative part, the creative process, tougher on yourself in the editing process. But later, later, keep that separate. I have actually two, two places in my room. I have a chair over there in the corner. You can probably see. Yeah. That's where I sit and, and with a pad of paper and a pen and try out ideas, just put stuff down, get ideas. Usually I do that first thing in the morning with a cup of hot tea next to me. This, where I'm sitting right now, is my desk with my computer. This is where I edit stuff. This is where I take ideas I've had, put them in the computer, take a look at them, juggle them, stretch them, you know, delete them, expand them, whatever. But they're, too, they're, they're so different that I have different places in my, in my room to, to do them, to be engaged in them. Wow. I don't know if I answered your question. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I think there's such a gem of wisdom for any, any writer out there. Have you found that this also applies to other areas? I mean, you've been a composer, you've done many, many things throughout your life. Does this also apply to other areas of your life? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, it's, um, I think it might've been Neil Gaiman, maybe who said something like, to be a writer, you have to have the, the unswerving, absolute uh, uh, arrogance, <laughs> right? Of a, of a teenager, <laughs> combined with the humility of, of, a, of a Buddhist monk. <laughs> And it's kind of like that. Um, I, I think that that's true as an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, you know you have to be, uh, you have to be passionately, uh, 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 you have to be passionately championing your idea. You're, you have to defend it no matter what. You have to, you know, don't let anybody come and tell you no. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. Don't let anybody tell you you've got a bad idea. Don't let anybody tell you you need to do, to do it differently. You've got to be your number one champion. Any entrepreneur will tell you that. There's so many famous stories that we know so many of them about people like, you know, Colonel Sanders or whoever being told no over and over and over and staying on with their idea and staying with their idea and staying with their idea until somebody finally, you know, finances them or whatever. So that's true. You need to have that dogged pursuit, that commitment to, to believing in your own idea at the same time you need to have an openness. You need to be able to create an open space for people who know your subject better than you do um, to people that you trust, people who are qualified, uh, both because of their knowledge and because of their personality. You trust them. You need to create space for people like that to sit down and listen to what you've got going on and go, interesting. Here's what won't work, and here's this, and here's that, and here's that. And that can be extremely difficult to do, to do both, because they're totally contradicting. But I'll give you an example. I, I'm, I'm in the middle of reinventing myself one more time right now. <laughs> I've written 30 books. You know, the, the best known is The Go-Giver, which exists in German also. Yes. Um, <laughs> and there are a few other books in the series. These are all like either business books, personal development, or other people are you know, leaders' memoirs. I've written different memoirs for other people. That's a certain sort of combination of, of skill sets to do those kinds of books. Right now, I'm in the middle of finishing my first novel. It's a thriller, actually. And, and, and it's a full-length, action-packed novel, suspense, psychological thriller, completely different kind of writing. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's something that's, that I've, I've never done before. And it's something that I'm learning as I go. And I just went through uh, two rounds, three rounds of really severe critique. Wow. First, first, I paid a consultant to actually read my manuscript and, and then critique it. And she did. I mean, she ripped it from top to bottom. And now I have my agent going through it, who has also just ripped it from top to bottom, you know, whole pages taken out, whole chapters taken out, whole, all suggestions. And it's... It's brutal, but brutal in such a good way. <laughs> uh -huh. 
because it gets better. It's, yeah. it's definitely getting so much better because of it. Uh, you, I believe you, you know, there, there may be people who are just such geniuses that they can just do it all themselves. But anybody I know, and this includes me, we can't produce the really good result without that kind of editorial advisor coming in with a completely objective viewpoint and saying, I know you love this part, but it doesn't, it doesn't belong. It doesn't work. You have to take it out. And I'm like, no, it's my favorite <laughs> part. So much. <laughs> but she's right. She's right. Yeah. So yeah, th those having, having that influence in your life takes humility on your part and it takes really, uh, it takes patience and it takes, it takes really strong belief in your original idea that it can survive all that editing and changing. So you have to have the belief and the openness both. That's so interesting. So, so that's humility to seek out expert advice and have your, your work really ripped apart and your favorite part being taken away. Is yeah. that something that you had to really develop over time or was it just there from the beginning? You always like seeking out. You know, here I was, I was lucky in this. I, and I would say when I was in my twenties and probably in my thirties, I, I was not open at all. I mean, to, to other people's, I mean, it would have, it would have been, if I'd been writing books, then it would have been very difficult for me to take uh, criticism. I wasn't, I was doing other things. I was involved in different kinds of business and this and that, but I know I made all kinds of mistakes and I could not hear it from anybody. Uh, uh, so I, I, you know, I've certainly been through many years of having my ears and my eyes totally closed and I know what that's like. Um, then I was lucky as a writer because I spent at least 10 years, probably more like 12 or 15 years first as an editor. So I spent my days taking other people's pieces of writing and making them better. Uh, I, I was the guy who said, you have a good idea here, but mm, this part at the end doesn't fit and you need this part over here. And this is whole thing is missing here. And also the language is a mess. It's really got to be cleaned up. And da, 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 da. so that was, I learned the whole editorial skill set um, in, in magazine, mostly in, in magazine work. Um, editing a book is, is, has its own particular set of skills that I, I'm now getting to sort of see in, in my editors, but it's, it's, it's much the same. So I was lucky. By the time I was writing books, I could, I could really appreciate what editors were saying to me. E although even then, there have been many times where it's like, oh, no, I can't hear that. Uh, I'll, somebody will say something, an editor, somebody I trust, or, or one, of my, one of my readers. I have a core group of readers I trust, my wife and a handful of other people. So then somebody will say something, will make an observation, like this, is, this doesn't really work that well here. And I'll go, I, I, I need to hear that, but I'm going to pretend I didn't hear it today. I need a day of just kind of walking around and going, ah, ah. so I'll come back and listen to that tomorrow. <laughs> and that still happens to me. You know, you have yeah. to, because you're switching. You're switching from this creative part of yourself that has to have total belief. When, when you're writing something, when you're starting a business, when you're doing anything creative, you have to put your all into it. You have to totally believe in it. Then you have to pull yourself out of it and say, okay, I, I don't believe in it at all. Now I'm totally a skeptic. And so it's a very, very different mindset and it's not easy to change gears. That changing in and out, I, I think is, is a, it's, it's a very adult kind of skill set. It's something that, you know, yeah. kids don't easily have self-perspective in the way that, you know, and a lot of, adult, a lot of adults don't either, but, uh, but need to, so. Yeah, well, I absolutely love that. I think it goes back to this humility of the monk that you mentioned before, right? It's like you yeah. switch from that, that arrogance of that young teenager, that, that intense belief in yourself that you're the best. And at the same time, you have the humility to accept that you may not be and that your, all your ideas yeah. maybe sometimes aren't that great. And I think that's it's, just, I mean, it's such a it's hard like, skill, like, but it's so necessary. It is. It is, you know, it is in, what in, in the spiritual development world that we would call detachment. You have to have a state of detachment, which isn't the same thing as apathy. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, I still really care about this book, but you have to have a certain detachment, which, which, which is to say, this book is not me. Uh, uh, you know, we're differentiated. Maybe it's more differentiation than, than, than detachment. Um, this is something that, 
you have to do in a relationship, you know, in a marriage. When you're in first in a relationship and passion's high and everything is sparks and, and, and fire and, and you just, every, the person staying next to you is just dazzling and incredible. You become so wrapped up, or this can happen. You become so wrapped up in each other, in the romance, in the, in the excitement, that it's like you're one person. You can't go anywhere without being together, right? And it's it, your friends are all going like, "Oh, give me a break! You can't go to the library. You can't go to the bathroom. You can't go anywhere without this person." It's annoying, but but you're just like you're like one. This is like the state you're in when you're first writing a book, or when you're first writing a piece of music, or when you're first sculpting something or painting something. It's like you get. You're in love with this thing. But in a, in a human relationship, you have to reach the point, not where the passion dies, but reach a point where you have detachment, differentiation, so that, you, so that you're clear that you form a whole, but you're also two different people. And you have, you have distinct natures and distinct needs and distinct wants. And, and you, know, you may not always like the same flavor of ice cream or watch this, like to watch the same movie, that doesn't mean you hate each other or that the love is gone. It just means you're two different people. That's what it's like to edit something you've written. After you've had plenty of time to be in love with it and plenty of time for it to form a first draft, then you step aside and say, okay, but let's differentiate now. I am, I'm the writer and that's, that's the writing piece. So let's, how can I, how can I work with that? You know, I love that metaphor. And to me, it comes back to, to self-identity. Because that's really what you're talking about, right? You have to detach yeah. your identity from that book's yeah. identity, right? Your worth and value from that book's yeah. worth and value. And yeah. this yeah. can be a very hard thing to do, right? For any creator out there, right? Whether it's musicians, artists, doesn't matter, right? Like it's so hard yeah. to, to dis, really detach from what you're creating there, right? And put that thing out there, but at the same time, yeah. not let it affect your sense of worth. Yeah, and you really put your finger on something. I think it's, it's just the center of it there, which is your sense of self-worth. You're so right. I, you know, I mentioned back in my 20s and 30s, I couldn't have heard advice, good advice from anybody. Looking back now, I can see that, that I, my own sense of self-worth was very fragile. And I think that as, um, you know, as time goes by, whether it's when you're in, you know, in your 60s and 70s and 80s, or whether you are able to achieve this in your 20s, which is fantastic, because many people do. Um, when you reach a point where you start to have sort of an inner confidence, not the fanaticism of that initial falling in love, but that just an initial confidence that, yeah, you're, you're okay. You know what you know. You think what you think. You're going to produce what you produce. And, and it won't be perfection. It won't all be perfect. And you'll need to, you'll need to improve and grow as you go. But you're your basic idea is like, I'm worth something. It's the world is a better place because I'm here. I have something of value to contribute. When I'm gone, I will have left the world a better place than it was before I came because I was here. That kind of basic intrinsic self-worth. I think you need to, you need to do whatever it takes to, to build that. You, know, you can build that in other people. They can build it in you. That's one thing a relationship is great for. Um, as, a, as a writer, as I mentioned, 30 books, right? You think that after 30 books, I would have complete and total confidence, and I don't. But I am in a point where I'll, uh, I'm, I'm working on a book right now, not the novel, but I'm working on another, actually I'm working on another Go-Giver book right now. So another parable, much shorter process. I'm working on it, and, it's, and I'm having a very difficult time. It's right at the beginning the process. I can have a very difficult morning. I can spend 90 minutes, two hours, three hours, uh, kind of like gah, going in circles and, and I'm not quite sure how to make this thing fit or where does this chapter go or what, what's going on. I can step away from that and go, you know, it, I know this is going to work and the, this is going to be okay. The only reason I know that is because I've done 30. <laughs> so I have some history and I can see that that's the odds are really really good that this is gonna this is gonna be okay, but if it weren't if I didn't have that history to look at, you know I would be in terrible shape. So I think that you know that's one reason why as an entrepreneur, often entrepreneurs you know, start many businesses and maybe the first one or two or three don't work, or maybe the first one does and then the second third fourth fifth don't and and a lot of these experiences are experiences are like an exercise in, in exercising the muscle of self-worth and knowing that if you make mistakes 
and the thing eventually doesn't work. I write a book that doesn't sell. Of my 30 books, many of them have not been commercial successes. You know, some have, but many have sold very, you know, not that many copies. Or have a business, that, it's like a business that, that fails, it runs out of money and goes bankrupt and close the business. Starting businesses and having them close, having them fail, um, can be a essential uh, ingredient in exercising that muscle of self-worth because you know, you got to the other end and you survived and you're still here. And yet business closed, but, but we did some good things. <laughs> no, we had, we had a good idea. Yeah, it didn't work. And maybe we'll, we can learn more about why it didn't work. Was we had the, the marketing was wrong or the personnel were wrong or we were trying to be too diverse too quickly or you know, we didn't have our supply chain in good place or whatever we can start to analyze about that. But there was, there was good stuff there. So it, it was, we have worth as an entrepreneur. Now we'll just do another one. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. I think to, to add to that, there, it seems like there's this distinction that we need to create in our minds between who I am and what I do. Because right? for you know, entrepreneurs, where if you're many young athletes listening to this, it's so easy to define yourself based on what you do, based on I'm an athlete, I'm this runner. I did this for so many years oh, yeah. of my life. It's really yeah. my life because I thought I was this runner. And that was what I built my sense of self-esteem and confidence and worthiness around. And obviously, that's not a good idea. Because when you have a bad race, when you get injured, when you get sick, you feel worthless. And it's just not a good way to actually yeah. live a very happy life. And so you need to learn to sort of detach from yes. what you do and find that's, worth within yourself. That's exactly. It's so, you said that so well. You know, this, this famous, uh, 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 this famous sta statement of Rene Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Right? Well, I, to me, the modern version of that is I do, therefore I am. <laughs> exactly, what you, exactly what you said. And I, I, can, I can tell you, it wasn't until I was in, probably my 50s, I guess, um, that I, I one day realized that uh, I could like do nothing and I would be okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that actually I was enjoying my life, with my wife, with my dog, with my home, with our routine, with our walks outside, with the books I'm reading. I could enjoy this life right now. And like, this is this is all I, I would ever need. And I realized that for most of my life, I've been wholly focused on sort of my goal, my, my goals. Where am I getting? Like, I, you know, when, when is this next big bestseller going to happen? When I, when I finish this book and what will I do with it? And maybe it will, or if it was in businesses or it was other things that I was doing, I was always looking ahead, which is good in one way, but I was living in the future. And, and it was all about what am I doing? What am I doing? I gotta drive, 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 drive to get that to happen. But you know, the future is 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 never now. Future is almost future. It's <laughs> now is now is already here. And so I I completely agree. The identification with what we do as being our self-worth, it's such a trap. It's so treacherous. And I think it's so prevalent in, in this modern world because we're so busy. Also, we have so many tools of productivity with the digital age you know, um, from financing to page layout. So many things are available to anybody now that didn't used to be available. It feels like, well, you ought to be doing something, right? <laughs> do something, do something yeah. constructive. Make something out of yourself. So yeah, I think, I think you, really, you really put your finger, you nailed it there. Yeah, you know, it's, it's also so interesting, right? Because like even culture is sort of perpetuating that, right? Because when you meet yeah. someone new, what is the first what thing do you, you do? ask? What do you do, right? <laughs> Not like, who are you? What, like, what are your yeah. dreams, your visions? Like, what do you stand for? Like, how do you show up? No, it's like, what do you do, right? I'm like a banker, yeah. like whatever it is, right? Yeah. Like we define ourselves by these really narrow construct rather than who we actually are inside. So it's so interesting. Which we've been doing for, you know, thousands of years. I mean, yeah. if you look at so, so many, most of the, you know, most common old last names are, uh, are occupations, you know, yeah. Baker, Smith, and what have you. It's like, we're all, we're all defined by, we're, we're cobblers. Cooper was a guy who made barrels, right? So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I think that's actually, I think that's probably, I'm not a historian, but I imagine this is a fairly new perspective, culturally speaking, that we're talking about, which is that, um, that it's not just sort of the elite 
rare philosophers or whoever uh, who have the luxury of, you know, flights of fancy, but that, that people, that we and humanity in general um, are, are maybe coming to more of, a, of an identification and examination of ourselves as, as individuals of self-worth. I mean, one reason for that is that uh, people change careers so much now, change occupations, and lifelong occupations is, is so infrequent now. So, um, you know, you don't, you, you don't tend to work at the same company for 40 years and then retire. Yeah. Especially not you. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm another situation. <laughs> <laughs> so I want, to, I want to take us back for a moment to, yeah. you mentioned before you're writing your first thriller right now with 65. And yeah. you know, in our pre-chat before, before shooting this interview, you tell me the story of how, how the author of Jack Reacher is actually now retiring at 65, starting handing over his project, right? And you're starting that new career. It's like, yeah. What is it that drives you to like keep reinventing yourself, keep chasing sort of completely new things out of your comfort zone until like until now when other people are just like, hey, that's it, I'm I'm done, right? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I'm not even sure if I know the exact answer, but um, no. So Lee Child, who is the his real name is Jim Grant, but Lee Child is his his writing name pen name. So Lee Child, the author of the, she's written 24, I think, Reacher books, Jack Reacher wow. books. Uh, he's been knighted by the queen. He was he was on the uh, uh, on the one of the judges of the of the um, the, the book Man Booker Prize uh, this year, which is like the most prestigious literature award in the world. And like this, this thriller writer who so came to this well. late, <laughs> hey man, who came to this late in his career, talk about career changes. He uh, he worked for television. He was a director for tele for uh, local BBC television and. At the age of what, 45? I think, what, 44, 45? He said, I, I'm at, he was out of work, said, I gotta, I've gotta write some thrillers. So that blew my mind. Don Winslow, who is currently one of the, the best-selling American writers, a phenomenal, amazing writer, same age, same age. And he also came to it late because he did, he did so many other careers. I mean, there's so many examples of great writers who have been in and out of many other careers and came to it late. So that, for, that gives me, uh, you know, it gives me hope <laughs> and confidence. But, um, so what makes me do that? You know, Max, um, a part of it is that I've just always had the desire to, uh, to reach a lot of people. And, and, and I'm not an extrovert. So for me, that doesn't take the form of wanting to be a film actor or a TV actor or be some politician or be somebody who's out personally, physically, directly on the stage. A public speaker. I have friends who are public speakers, um, who are excellent public speakers. Bob Berg, Dan Burris, you know, some of the best in the business. And I've done a little bit of that, but it's just not my life. So uh, Lee Child, who wrote the Reacher book, said that writing is show business for shy people. <laughs> which I think is really, really apt. It's really good. So that's, that's part of it. Um, and, and part of it is I just... I love the challenge of, of sort of figuring out something new. And, um, you know, part of it is that I fell in love with Jack Reacher books and Philip Marlowe, going back to the classics of the early 20th century. And I just fell in love with novels of that genre, uh, detective novels and crime novels and noir and mysteries. I just, I started loving reading them. I thought, I would just love to do that. So, you know, a lot of things I've looked at and said, I'd love to do that. Some of them I'll probably never do. Um, I'd love to conduct a symphony orchestra. Probably never will do it. My dad did, but I probably, but writing a thriller, I, I, I said, I, I wanna do that. That sounds just so much, like so much fun. And it is. Wow, I love that. Now, one thing that's just fascinating about your writing career is like you churning out books like nothing, right? Like 30 books in 10 years is just an unbelievable pace. I read in one of your blog posts, you know, one, one of the books for John Asraf, whom I'm a huge fan of, you had like mm. 30 days to, to write that book. So like, yeah, was, oh, what does that process look like for you? It's just, you know, writing, writing, writing every single day. Um, you know, it, I gotta tell you, it doesn't feel fast to me. It feels like, I, I, I always have in my mind, uh, Mozart and Brahms. You know, M Mozart who was famous for, you know, just for his ease of writing. You know, he said that he would he would be composing a piece in his head while he's writing out another piece he's already composed by, in his hand. 
And I don't doubt it. I mean, the guy was just so prolific. And then you look at someone like, like uh, Brahms, who would take a, a single line of music and just torture himself over it for days. And maybe even he would take a piece and it would take years to, to develop. And I, I feel much more like Brahms. I absolutely do not feel like Mozart at all. And I know there are writers like that who just like sit down and just like churn it out, churn it out, churn it out. And it boggles my mind because I think so hard for weeks before I've even got a word. Um, but this is what the process looks like for me. And it happens in three, it happens in three stages. It varies some, whether it's like a parable which is a piece of fiction, but it's like a teaching piece of fiction. So it's like a story with a moral. So it isn't like a novel. It isn't a complicated story. It's a simple story, but it has to have depth. Um, then there's a memoir, which is somebody else's story. And I've done a dozen of those probably. And then there's just your basic business books, like, or, or books like I wrote for John Asaroff. Um, but the process all is almost three steps. The first step is gathering, which is kind of like gathering the raw material. In the case of a memoir, it's usually hours and hours on the phone with somebody uh, over weeks, months, you know, just having them tell their whole story of their life and asking questions and probing, interviewing, downloading it, transcribing it, and getting this massive material. Uh, in the case of John Asroff, John and I you know, sat down, I went to a couple of his workshops, we talked together, he had a couple of books he wanted me to read. So there's that kind of gathering. Um, for something like The Go-Giver, um, which is the product of Bob Berg and me combined, I just, I knew Bob's writing and I knew my writing and I took tons of, of blog posts we'd both done and little articles we'd both done and just brainstormed for a while. But that first phase is getting a bunch of stuff on paper and it's a mess. None of it is going to appear in the, in the book, final book, the way it looks right now because it's, you know. <laughs> you know, I think I, I've heard, and I don't know this, I may have the numbers wrong, but I've heard that in a, in a major feature film, there are something like 20 hours of film shot for every wow. one hour that goes into film. And I think it actually may be a much higher number than that. I think I'm getting it way wrong. Wow. Um, it's like that here. I, I get this massive of material. Um, Lecture notes, interview notes, whatever. When I was working on, first working on the novel, the novel is about a disgraced Navy SEAL who stalks a serial killer on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean. So it's sort of like a locked room, you know, the classic locked room mystery because there's no go getting off or on. I mean, it's all in this, only the room is, a, is holds about 6,000 people. And it's, it's this, the size of the Empire State Building turned on its side, floating in the ocean. So I spent months reading about aircraft carriers doing internet searches you know just downloading all kinds of stuff about, about aircraft carriers uh watching documentaries i i was able to get a visit on the actual aircraft carrier which is the one that's in our book that you know that we featured that we, we set the book on so you know just a ton of that kind of experience a lot of crime writers will go on the beat with cops um will go talk to Cops talk to victims, talk to criminals in prison, talk to you know police commissioners. That you just talk to. I I try to do the same thing. Just like get to know the field and gather stuff, gather stuff. Not, never having any idea if it's going to be useful or not. The second stage is writing the thing, and that is taking my pile of stuff and spinning out of that a, a first draft. And that can take, you know, I've. The Go-Giver, I think our first draft took about six weeks. It was really fast. Uh, all the other Go-Giver books so far, that's been about the same. Uh, this novel, it was a year and a half to get that first draft written. Wow. So, you know, to, to, um, so that can vary a lot. But um, usually I, I sort of learned habits and tricks and so forth about how to organize my raw stuff. So by the time I'm writing, I know where my stuff is. I start to draw on it. Um, and then I, I have three files open on my computer. I have an outline, which is subject to much change. It's very flexible, but I always like to work with an outline. I have over here, I have a file of just what I call chunks. It's pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of material. And then in the middle, I have my draft, which is blank. <laughs> so I start feeding raw material in through the outline 
and then brainstorming and churning out new ideas. And then the draft comes out. Then comes the third part, which is um, revising and editing and refining and completing the draft. And that's usually for me, it's pretty quick, man. I'll tell you, I'll give it to a circle of readers of four or five, six readers. We'll take it to my editor if I have a publisher yet, and we'll take it through a round, take it a week or two or three and put in revisions and I'm done. This novel, I started revisions last October. And wow. I'm I, and I'm waiting. I'm, still... I'm waiting right now. I'm waiting to hear from my agent to find out whether in this last week she thinks we're finished or not. So, it, it, the time varies, but it's almost the same process. Dig up the raw matter, create the story, the draft. The first draft is is never the, the, the done thing, and then uh, edit, edit, and revise. So interesting. Do you still get the same excitement from you know finishing a book when when you know you hear back from your editor now within this week or whatever? Do you think you're going to get the same excitement as you did for your first book? More, more, more. Yeah, more. And I, I'll be honest, if I if I had done thirty of the same kind of book, I don't know what my experience would be like. I mean, you look at someone like Lee Child, who's done twenty four Jack Reacher books. One of the uh, and his. His, he has a huge readership, obviously, one of the best-selling authors in the world. His devoted readership, uh, you'll, you'll find tons of people who hate this, this book and love that one. This one's okay. But it's very, people would say he's uneven. Some of those books are eh, not as successful as others. Some of them are just magnificent. Uh, Don Winslow, I mean, most writers have, have a certain level or you know, an up and down this. But if you're writing a series uh, um, of the same characters or, you know, the continuations of the same story, or even if you're doing the same kind of book, business books, you know, 30 business books, 30 memoirs, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'd be feeling, honestly. Part of the reason, part of my excitement, I think, is that I've been kind of shifting and moving and trying out different things as I've gone. Um, so even the Go-Giver book, so we got there's three and they're all like a continuation. This is like this, this is the first sequel, another sequel. They all happen in the same town. There are some overlapping characters, same basic principles in there. Um, but I found ways to not get bored at all. So each one has something totally different than the other ones did. And so, yeah, you gotta, you gotta keep it for me. I've got to keep changing it up or I, I would get bored. But yeah, I, I'm, when a book comes out now, I'm, I'm more excited than, than ever. I love that. Now, I'm so curious because you've written, you know, thousands of stories, quotes, insights, inspirational messages. What has been like the most important insights throughout your own life that has really inspired you to live a better life? Wow. Um, I would say that uh, somewhere in my, let's see, I'm doing the math. Somewhere in my late 20s, I guess. Yeah, late 20s or very early 30s. I was starting to read a little bit, dabble in the sort of the personal development literature realm. And I stumbled on this. Well, you're going to, John Asaroff fan, you're going to love this. I stumbled on the idea um, that we talk to ourselves and that our, our internal voice um, has great influence over us. And the more I looked at that, the more intrigued I got with that. And I was working at home at that time. And I started, uh, I, I started the practice of speaking my internal dialogue out loud. So, for example, I'd be sitting at my computer. I'd say, oh, John, you complete idiot. You are hopeless. You are <laughs> and I'd, I'd like to hear myself and be like, yeah, am, I, am I saying that? Is that me? <laughs> yeah, it was, what I was, it was what I was thinking already. I just had never heard it before. Wow. Um, I... I, I became passionate about that, about becoming aware of what I was telling myself and um, also hearing in others and hearing people self-talk. You can hear people self-talk and you spend any time around them. You can hear it leak out in the way they talk to themselves. And it's really, really interesting. I, I befriended, I became friends about a little over 10 years ago with a former Navy SEAL, Brandon Webb. And Brandon was not only a Navy SEAL sniper, but he also uh, was the, at one point, the head of the the master, they call it, of the Navy SEAL sniper course, which is one of the most difficult courses in the world. And he was called on, he and a friend of his, to totally rewrite the, redesign the sniper course. This is in 2003, 2004. And um, Brandon says, 
I mean, they did all, they made all kinds of radical innovations in the sniper course. They moved their students from hand sketches because sketching uh, a reconnaissance and surveillance and, and sketches is a major part of the sniper's task. Sniper doesn't do much shooting. Sniper does a, does a lot of reconnaissance and surveillance. They're really an intelligence asset first and foremost. So they took their students from hand-drawn sketches to software and satellite, satellite uplink and so forth. Um, they, they brought the skills set into the digital age. They, institute, they brought in a whole course on ballistics um, so that every sniper student would become not just a, a marksman, but a ballistics expert. So they did all kinds of, of you know, radical revolutions of this course. But Brandon says the single most important change he made in the course was a course in mental management. And it was basically a course in self-talk. And we wrote, we wrote about this in this book, Mastering Fear. Um, Brandon and I have written like five books together, I think six books together. And we're writing this novel together, this thriller. Oh, wow. So this whole thing of your self-talk uh, and how important it is, I mean, because you will say, you will repeat things to yourself thousands of times more, more repetitions than anybody else in the world says them to you, than your parents, your teachers, your spouse, your kids, anybody. You have way more influence on your actual daily thought pattern, on your habits of thought based on what you're telling yourself. Um, that is not only, not only is that not some kind of, you know, airy fairy, weird out there idea. That's like Navy SEAL sniper course 101. Um, that was the most important thing they taught. And he, he always gives this example where in the past, the instructors would, you know, you'd be sitting there aiming a target and the instructor would be going on, don't miss, right? <laughs> this is classic. It's like telling your kid in, little, in, in baseball, right? And saying, okay, here comes the ball. Now don't strike out. Well, of course you're going to strike out. Yeah, but you put that negative image in your mind, and you're fixing on the negative image. It's like, um, so some you'll hear some parents will tell their children. Their children's running through the room, and some parents will say, "Be careful, you know, you know, take it a little slower." And some parents will say, "You're going to hurt yourself." <laughs> They're both saying the same thing, yeah. but one of them is saying, "Here's what you should. Here's what you should do. Here's what you could do to alter your behavior," and the other one is saying. A catastrophe is going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I predict it. You're already dead. <laughs> and if you're saying that, if you're speaking that way to your kids, you're speaking that way to yourself. Yeah. But Brandon would, Brandon would change the student's internal dialogue from, now don't miss, don't miss, don't miss, to, you know, 400 yards, you know, to elevation two, whatever, hold right for wind. Now breathe and just follow the breathing and just train themselves in all the things they need to be doing correctly. And just to repeat those, repeat those, repeat those, repeat those. It's something I find myself doing t even today. And I'll do it out loud because I train myself to do that. I'll be sitting in, my, in that chair over there that you saw with a pad of paper and a pen. And I'll say, I have no idea what I'm doing. No, wait a second. What I mean is I haven't discovered yet what's happening in this chapter, but I'm just about to. And I mean, I'll have to, have to literally take myself by the hand and change that from I have no idea what I'm doing. Two, I am about to find out what's <laughs> happening here. Um, and it's, this is what, this is after 30 years or more of working on my habits of self-talk. So I think that is, in practical terms, I think that's the most significant discovery of my life for me. Yeah, wow. You know, I absolutely love this idea of literally catching your thoughts in real time and learning to reframe them. And also yes. like speaking them out loud, right? Because there's such power, like, because people, they often are so unaware of what's actually going on in their brains, right? Like when you ask yes. most people, they have no clue, right? They have no clue right. how they're feeling, what they're thinking, what they're saying to themselves, the beliefs that they have, the assumptions yeah. that they've made. And so speaking out loud, I found the exact same thing. It's like one of the most powerful things you can do to realize, first of all, all the crap that you're saying to yourself, right? Or meditation oftentimes is, I found the yeah. same thing for me. It's like, it comes when, up you, when, when you listen, right? When you really listen to your dialogue, and you're like, yeah. oh my gosh, how much crap am I telling myself all day long, right? <laughs> so here's an interesting thing. Among married couples, um, uh, one of the most common reasons for separation and divorce is money. But it's not money. It's not money or even the lack of money. It's the lack of talking about money. 
And money, money, the, how, the family money, family money situation is, uh, is one of the most difficult things, you know, couples, couples will talk about sex a lot more easily than they'll talk about money. They'll talk about kids, about violence, about whatever. But money is very, very difficult. Why is it so difficult to talk about money? I think it's, it's like what you just said, is because there's, I, we, know base, we, know, we know deep inside that if we start having this conversation, we're like afraid of the crap that's going to come out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we're terrified that we have no idea what we're doing, that we're you know, going deeper in the red every month, that we're, we're spending more on this than we should. So we're, we're afraid to actually sit down and look at it. Well, that, it might be that way with our own self-talk, but uh, it, it's shocking as you say what's in there. But once you start to look at it, to, to air it out, give it, get it out in the sunshine, we can shine light on it and let it get some air. It is, is life transforming. It's life transforming. And you're right, you have to put it out loud because if you just catch your thought and you just think to yourself, hmm, <laughs> not good enough. It's not good enough. You gotta speak it out loud because it, it, somehow it doesn't become real until you speak it out loud. And when you speak it out loud and you hear it, you go, really? That's really what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. you've, been, you've been thinking it secretly for decades. Yeah, it's not gonna change anything. You have yeah. to actually <laughs> say it. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I love this idea of literally bringing it out in the sunlight, right? Because like the yeah. struggle is like most people, they try to avoid it, right? They try to run from it. And it's so easy to drown it out, especially nowadays, right? With technology, with, movies and netflix and sugar right. and all of this stuff it's so easy yeah. to drown out like the noise that's inside there those thoughts right that like aren't serving us it's so easy to forget about it and hide from it but that's what right. you're saying here really is like you have to speak it out loud you have to acknowledge the truth because it yeah. is truth right if it's going on in your head if it's going you know, going on for years it is the truth of what's going on right now and so the yeah. only way to change it is you have to bring it out there face the truth and then decide what you're going to do about it yeah by the way, uh, this also, it, it, there's, there's a positive side of this too, is, is sometimes I don't know, or I don't realize thoughts that I have. I don't, I, I don't even know what I, what I think until I see myself writing it, somebody in an email or writing it in a draft of something I'm writing. Uh, a lot of my best ideas um, for blog posts or little articles have come from emails I was writing to somebody wow. where I suddenly, I suddenly typed something and went, oh, yeah, I didn't know I thought that, but I do think that. <laughs> and the same thing happens with writing. It's like, I don't have any idea what this dialogue's gonna sound like, but it starts to come out and I go, oh, yeah, okay, it's like that. So sometimes the act of getting it out, whether it's speaking your thoughts or emailing your thoughts or, or writing, externalizing your thoughts, you, you find out all kinds of things about what you think that you didn't know you thought. Um, and I still sometimes don't know what I think. I don't know what I think until until I say it. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes unfortunately. But it's important, yeah. right? Because it goes back to this ancient idea of like know thyself, right? And to to yeah. know yourself, you have to study yourself, or you have to yeah. literally ask yourself those deep questions of like, what do I stand for? How do I show up? Right? What is important to me? And most people yeah. never take the time to actually sit down on, or, you know, go for a walk ideally in nature, right? And think about those, those big life-changing questions, life-defining questions. That if you don't yeah. ask yourself, you're going to live a very unconscious life, just, you know, sort of yeah. always going with the winds. Less satisfying than it could be. Yes, yeah. 100%. Now, I'm so happy you, you mentioned Brendan before, because one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated by is death. And yeah. you've written a whole book in it. So I'm super curious how your relationship with death, you know, talking to him and maybe throughout your own life even has changed over time. Um, you, you know, yeah, because we, um, we did one book. Um, our first book together was his memoir, The Red Circle. It was basically his story about growing up and Sniper and the course and so forth. The second book was another memoir, but it was a memoir of, of six of his friends, uh, all of them Navy SEAL snipers. Uh, all of them, were they all snipers? Yeah, yeah, all, all Navy SEALs, not all snipers. Uh, uh, all of whom were dead, wow. all of whom had died. You know, some in combat, some in, you know, one in training, uh, different situations. And um, so that was kind of a whole, as you say, a whole book about death in a way. And I, it, was, it was weird because I was writing them, I mean, it was, it was, I was writing it from Brandon's point of view. But still, writing the story of a lot of these different people for growing up, I told all of them how they grew up and sort of their whole story, and they weren't there to talk to. Um, so I, I 
talk to parents, I talk to spouses, I talk to kids, I talk to friends, I talk to siblings. Uh, and it was, it was a, it was a wild experience. Um, I think that, um, I, I'm not sure how much that affected, how, how that affected me in, in relation to death, but I will say, I'll say this. There was a time when I, um, I used to fly a lot, uh, going to visit writers I was writing with, uh, co-authors, or going to speak or whatever, or for business. So I did a lot of flying, and I used to always look out the window and go, if this plane crashed, would I be okay? I mean, would I be okay with that? It's like, if, my, if I knew my plane was going down, my life was over right now, how would, how would I be with that? And uh, generally speaking, I would not be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not, my answer, right? <laughs> my, my answer was like, oh, no, I, I don't want that to happen. That, that would be very, very bad. Um, and I, re I reached a point, uh, I wasn't striving for it, but uh, it was uh, around, around the age of 50, um, in my mid-50s, actually. Go-Giver had been out for a few years. I remember being up in a plane once and looking out the window and going, if this plane went down, how would I be with that? And I was like, I would, I would be okay with that. I would be, I mean, I would prefer to keep going. <laughs> Lots I still want to do, but, um, but, but I'd be, I'd be okay. And, um, this is shortly after we, I'd been working on this memoir I was mentioning with, with Brandon, 2009, 2010, back in those years. And, um, it was only 10 years ago. And, uh, I, I guess it was that I was satisfied with, what my life was right now. It goes back to the thing you talk about, you know, about identifying with what you do. I was starting to, 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 to live my life, enjoy it the way it is today, rather than always being trying to drive for a bigger goal. And uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, uh, we talk about death in, actually, we talk about death in, in, at the end of this book, too, Mastering Fear. Um, Mastering Fear outlines five steps to take to master fear, not eliminate fear. You can't eliminate fear, not conquer fear, because you can't conquer fear, but to master it so that you get to use it as an ally rather than as an adversary. And um, the, the material or the principles are kind of drawn, we say it's drawn from Brandon's experiences as seal, and it is, but it's drawn from both of our experiences just as human beings as well. And so there, there are five steps, and the fifth and last step uh, in a way it comes first, but we put it last, is knowing what's important. And when you know what's important, then uh, that puts everything in perspective. And so it, it makes it much easier to do something you're afraid of when you know, when it's worth it. If it's worth it, what makes it worth it? Um, so knowing what's important in your life and having that in your life to some degree, I think creates a uh, a life uh, where you're satisfied right now, and death uh, uh, has a very different flavor at that point. Wow. You know, John, I forgot one thing in my introduction, which is mind reader. Because you keep, <laughs> I keep noticing this, like you keep reading my mind and like literally the questions I'm about to ask, you just keep answering them in advance. I'm, I'm loving this. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm loving this. I think like you say, it's so important, right? To know what matters to you, right? To know what's important to you. Because if you don't yeah. know that, if you don't know what you stand for, like, what are you going to live for, right? Right. Right. I love that. Yeah. And then what happens is, uh, what all too easily happens is you start to slip into this life where it's sort of like the life is living you. You're not living the life. Yeah. And so you become sort of the effect rather than the cause. And that's, you know, when you feel like your calendar and your events and everything around you is just kind of running your life and you're like a puppet just being run. It's, it's not, it may not be horrible, but it's not as exciting and it's not as satisfying as if you are actually pulling the strings of your life and saying, okay, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and this is what I want to, to be doing. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. The other day in my journal, I think two days ago, I wrote this, this, this thought that came up in my head, right, which was stop measuring your life by the breath that you get to take and start measuring it by the moments that take away your breath. Mm, I think that's this great. goes back to what you're saying, right? Like it's, it's not fantastic. enough to just like make a living, right? You want to live a life. You want to create joy every single day in your life and actually yeah. experience life to the fullest, right? Yeah, 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 exactly.
Yeah, so important. Now, John, one of the things we always love to do on the show here is celebrate failure as a stepping stone to our personal growth. So do you have a favorite failure? <laughs> I have so many. <laughs> favorite? This is like picking your favorite child. I mean, it's <laughs> like, oh, well, I'll tell you. Um, I mean, what? yeah, I do. Um, first, I'll say there, you know, here's some other failures. I had a business that went bankrupt, and as a result, I had to go personally bankrupt. So I, I've been through the, the, the bankruptcy process. Um, I've had two marriages fail, and two kids in each, so that's four children. So that's it, been just devastating. Um, and, and learned an enormous amount from everything I just described, but unfortunately, learned it very slowly. <laughs> or maybe that's fortunate, I don't know. Um, but I think uh, probably my most valuable failure was The Go-Giver. Um, Bob and I wrote The Go-Giver. Uh, it, at the time, I didn't have a track record. It's, the first, it's one of the first two books I wrote. So um, at, and at that point, nothing I'd written had been published yet. And so we wrote it. I had an agent. She took it to publishers in New York. And I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but it was something like 23 rejections. Um, we, it got rejected over and over. Yeah, first, first round, it was over a dozen people rejected, probably like 18 or something. And a lot of people said, you know, I love the story, but I don't think it's gonna work, or this is not really right for us, or I think this is wrong with the story, or that's wrong with the story. It just all kinds of different reasons. But the answer after a couple of weeks of trying was, you know, no. And uh, so, uh, and here's the beautiful thing about it. Uh, you know, you hear stories like Colonel Sanders. I mentioned Kentucky Fried Chicken. He took his recipe through, I don't know what, a, a million people, probably like, you know, 80 people or something like that. And everyone said, no, 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 until finally somebody said yes. And I guess the same thing happened with Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield and Chicken Soup for the Soul and, you know, a hundred other stories like that where people just kept relentlessly believing in their thing and they got a thousand no's and they got a yes. Well, this is different because we got like 18 no's and they were right. They should have said no. <laughs> um, it, it, and it wasn't a question of just being persistent because we had, our product wasn't good. Um, the book wasn't ready. And what happened was we took the book, we took the manuscript back and said, well, that didn't work. And our agent sat down with it and said, um, I, I, let me let me work with that and she she brought it back covered with red ink um and we spent six months revising it revising it revising it revising it most of that was deleting things by the way simplifying it and after that we took it back to new york a second time and got another dozen rejections or so but then someone said yes and that someone was, was you know, our publisher portfolio. We've been with them for over a decade now. We sold almost a million copies. But the, the, the point of, of the story for me isn't that it got rejected so many times. It's that it got rejected uh, so many times and they were right. Yeah. It should have been rejected. It wasn't ready. And we needed that feedback. We needed to know that our idea was good, but the execution wasn't ready. It just wasn't ready yet and that it could be made ready. And then when it was made ready, it has really, really worked. The book has been really successful and it's just touched a lot of lives. It's the most successful book I've ever written so far. So um, yes, persistence, believing in yourself. We believed in that book. Bob and I never doubted for a moment that the book was, was worth getting out to a lot of people. But there's the open up side, the humility side, the, you know what, it's not ready yet side. That was just such a valuable lesson. You know, this is such a great story because it goes back to what we talked about all the way in the beginning of this episode, right? This ability to detach yourself from the outcomes, from what you do, from, you know, what you're creating out there, right? And to accept that, hey, it may not be as good yet as it can be. And to right. have that humility to say, okay, it's not as good, but I can make it better, right? I can improve. Yeah. I can, you know, make this great if I just put into work and get that feedback and be, yeah. you know, almost humiliated by other people scratching out everything there is, right? So, yes. Yes, so powerful. Now, John, we talked about so many great ideas, insights, tips, tools today. If you could give our listeners just one challenge to take away and start applying in their life, what would be that one thing? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, I would say this. Here's what it would be. Um, imagine, first of all, I want to apologize to anybody who is 90 years old right now for what I'm going to say. Imagine you are 90 years old. And if you're if 90, you imagine old. 110. <laughs> if, yeah, exactly. If you're, if you're 90, then imagine 98, 100. So imagine that you're 90 years old and you're in good health, excellent health, no health concerns right now. Uh, and you are financially taken care of. You've, you've, everything is in good shape. So there's nothing that you have to do. Your time is your own. And you've, your life is behind you, basically. All your career achievements, you've done what you've done. You've been where you've been. And now you're at the age of 90. I don't know how many years you still have ahead of you. But let's say you've got five or ten or, you know, just a few. I don't know. But you got you got to stretch your time in front of you. What do you want to do? What would you do? What do you do? Then the challenge of that is the first part is what is it you're doing every day? What does the day look like? What's what's the what's the focal point of your day? What is it you want to do? You get up, you brush your teeth, you have breakfast, this and that. But aside from all the stuff of living, where do you put your time that you have free now? And the second part of the challenge is okay. How can you put that in some form in your life today? Or at latest tomorrow, at latest tomorrow in 24 hours. Wow, I absolutely love that. I've never quite heard it like that. And I think this is so powerful of really figuring out because then like all this stuff falls to the wayside, right? All this like I have to make money and like this career and stuff. And it's really just like, what do you love to do, right? I love that question. Now, John, before I ask my final question. Imagine, listeners... imagine, you're, plant, you're, imagine, you're, imagine you're planting a seed. The thing you're doing right now is planting a seed for that thing you do when you're 90. Anyway, yes. please, last question. Now, <laughs> <you start. laughs> uh, before I ask my final question, where can listeners connect with you online? Uh, my website, which is just my name. It's John David Mann, two N's, dot com. You get all my books are there. My blog is there. Uh, you can e con contact me by email through there. It's everything is there. Perfect. Now to wrap it up, what does it mean for you to max out your life? <sighs> to max out my life. Wow. Um, you know, I think to, to, to max out my life is, it's, it's a, it's an, a daily thing. Um, it's an everyday thing. And it is, um, you know, if I, if I can live my life, my day, uh, doing what I was put here to do, you know, what I'm, what I'm meant to do, what I'm good at doing and do it to the best of my ability with someone that I love. That to me is success. That's a maxed out life. That's like, I'm good. 